Phillips Auction House has a reputation for creating the markets for artists who don't have a track record. Over the last several years, the house has grown rapidly to become a venue for a range of works, including some of the biggest lots of the season. In this podcast, we'll talk to Phillips Basquiat expert Scott Nussbaum about the massive Jean-Michel Basquiat painting Phillips will be auctioning for Yusaku Maizawa. We'll also hear from Deputy Chairman Robert Manley about a rare Calder Mobile, an early Yaya Kusama painting, a much-in-demand Helen Frankenthaler, and a bright red and yellow Rothko, as well as works by Hans Hoffman and Carmen Herrera. It wouldn't be Phillips if we didn't also speak to Rebecca Bowling about the auction debut of Justin Caguiat, the largest work to come to market by Colombian artist Maria Berrio, and another rare Amy Sherald painting. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast, live arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maneker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information as well as access to exclusive private sales, or visit us at liveart.io. This season, Philip surprised the auction world when it announced it would be selling a special work by Jean-Michel Basquiat. During the winter of 2016, the Basquiat market was in downdraft. In fact, the whole art market pulled in its horns in 2016 as auction totals fell substantially. Most market watchers would have expected the auction houses to avoid Basquiat's for a few seasons until momentum returned. Instead, Christie's guaranteed collector Adam Lindemann's prized Basquiat, one that had been on the cover of the informal catalog raisonné for the artist. It was a bold move. The gamble paid off when Yusaka Maizawa outbid everyone to spend $57 million on the painting. Maizawa would go on to outbid others for another Basquiat that he paid $110 million for. Since that time, there has been a private sale for another very large work with a similar figure, also above 100 million, which leads many to wonder how high this painting could go. Scott Nussbaum remembers seeing Untitled Devil, the painting on offer, when it was first exhibited in 2016. It was like a revelation to see this picture. And I remember seeing it on exhibition and just thinking, wow, this is just a magnificent picture. 
Um, and I think that you're right that it, the fact that it shattered a record for a work by Basquiat ever sold at auction. It was, I believe at the time, uh, Mr. Mezawa was public about his acquisition of it. So not only did it make this huge price, but now here was, uh, although he wasn't a new collector, I don't think he had no, been known to be bidding at this level previously. So it injected life into the market, but I think also the fact that Mezawa bought it publicly also just injected a lot of excitement into the art market in general, because here was somebody new who um, had taken an interest in Jean-Michel's work and was not going to stop bidding. Um, and, and you're right, this picture appeared, appears on the cover of the you know, quotes unquote catalog resume. And I think there's a very simple explanation for that because it's so visually impactful. And if you wanted to capture Jean-Michel's power in a, in a single image, um, this was a pretty good candidate for that. So it has all of these elements about it. 1982 is one of the most prized years in Basquiat's body of work. Many of the large paintings from that year have become quite valuable. Most of them were painted in Modena, Italy. Nussbaum explains why. His first solo exhibition um, with a gallery was with Emilio Mazzoli in Modena in 1981 at an exhibition called Semo. Um, so he had traveled to Modena to do a first round of paintings in 1981. And evidently there was a studio space there that was enormous, which could allow him to work on paintings of this scale. He then subsequently traveled to Modena in 1982, early 1982 again, um, with the idea of having a second show with Emilio Mazzoli, but that never came to fruition. These paintings were painted in Modena, generally known as being some of the largest and most ambitious works that he painted, you know, primarily because he had the space to do so. Certainly in 81 and 82 works on this scale, uh, many of them, if not all of them, were painted in Modena. And, uh, and oftentimes uh, he would actually note that he painted it in Modena. He would sign it with Modena. Uh, not all of them, but typically when you see a work that has a lot of height uh, and a lot of width, it would have been painted uh, in Italy. A painting made in Italy by an American artist of Haitian and Puerto Rican descent being sold by a Japanese collector is by definition a global phenomenon. Indeed, Basquiat's fame around the world and appeal to a broad range of collectors is essential to the sale. I think that's one of the remarkable things uh, about Jean-Michel and, and, his, and his market and his impact is that it's it's global, and um, whether you are a kind of a, a more classic collector of art, or if you are you know, young, you've just sold your business, whatever it is, um, there does seem to be this common denominator of interest in Jean-Michel's work, um, no matter what corner of the globe you, you are in. So we do expect this to be, um, you know, to have some competition, hopefully, and uh, from probably places that we don't necessarily anticipate um, in advance of an auction. You know, with a picture like this, I think it's something that uh, sometimes you, you put up on the wall and you kind of see what comes in. There is a third party guarantee. Um, and uh, I have to say that, uh, you know, the way that all of this came together was really a testament to the relationships that my colleagues have in the art world. Um, you know, we have a, a colleague who has a very close relationship with a collector who I don't think had really previously expressed 
specific interest in Jean-Michel's work, but in the context of a conversation they were having, that collector mentioned, here's my dream painting. If you ever see this, if you ever hear this coming to market, please let me know. Well, we happen to know who owned that work, um, and we you know, approached Mr. Mezawa about selling the work, and here we are, but it's really, um, I think this is a, a situation where relationships are, are really mattered and are critical. And if it wasn't for those conversations taking place, um, this probably wouldn't have happened. The guarantee deal might have a clubby feel, but the auction is an opportunity for anyone with $70 million or more to make a bid. For the rest of us, it's a rare opportunity to see an extraordinary work of art. You can also see, if you're in New York, that work in context. Neymag Contemporary has a show of Basquiat's works, and Jean-Michel's heirs, his sisters, are putting on a show called King Pleasure at the Starrett Lehigh building that is getting a lot of attention. The, the King Pleasure exhibition, I think, is, is really just a revelation. You know, it was designed by David Ajay and Associates, and uh, you know, the sisters, Janine and Lassan Basquiat and Nora Fitzpatrick were the curators of the show, and it really, I think, brings a perspective that has not been explored previously, which is remarkable and moving, and also shows some work that people have never seen before. So there's a lot of excitement. And of course, at Namad you know, uh, Contemporary, uh, is the show curated by Dieter Burkhardt, and you know, it also shows uh, an element of Jean-Michel's work that hasn't been focused on so much previously. And then we, you know, we also happen to have this exhibition um, uh, of works by Lee Jaffe, who was a photographer who traveled around the globe with Jean-Michel. And I think there's just this general kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's a cultural phenomenon. Jean-Michel is a cultural phenomenon. And so we are, it does seem to be this, uh, as I say, confluence of, of, you know, events that are taking place, um, uh, which we're, you know, fortunate enough to be able to capitalize on with, with this painting. Phillips has a number of other works in its evening sale, including a rare Calder mobile with the cryptic title 39 equals 50. Deputy Chairman Robert Manley explains. A great title which signals that there is a whole story behind the title. The mobile is part of his Snow Flurry series, which are all white mobiles all with all round uh, discs of varying sizes. Peter Ballou, who's a, a collector and friend of Calder, commissioned Calder to make a snow flurry for, for his wife, who was turning 50 in 1961. Calder did not do the commission and instead gave him a sculpture that he had from 1959. When it arrived at Peter's, he, he counted the elements and said, wait a minute, I wanted 50 elements. And uh, so then Calder said, well, I hope you like it and uh, we're going to call it 39 equals 50. Beyond the title, 39 equals 50 is remarkable because it is one of a small series of works called the Snow Flurries. Calder made these for a short period of time. The Snow Flurries sit within Calder's massive body of work of tens of thousands of objects. Uh, it's one of a, a fairly small number of these Snow Flurry sculptures. He's done 11 or 12 of these. Almost all of them are museums from the MoMA and the Whitney and the Sprengel Museum in Germany and the Liam in, in uh, uh, Korea. So it's very exciting. Uh, I've known about and been pursuing this sculpture for a long time, and uh, it was great to have a chance to be able to bring it to, to market. Uh, 
you know, you've seen some of the highest prices ever paid for Calder mobiles over the last few years. And, uh, uh, you know, historically, these all-white uh, flurries have uh, sold for among the highest prices ever paid. The last snow flurry to be auctioned made nearly $10.5 million in May of 2012. In today's art market, that doesn't sound like a lot. Phillips has only estimated 39 equals 50 at the previous snow flurry selling price. Other Calders have sold for more, up to $25 million for the most expensive Calder ever sold at auction. But is that really that high for an artist of Calder's fame and stature? With artists that are wildly you know, prolific and had right, long careers, you know, it, it is sometimes a challenge to, to differentiate you know, a masterpiece from just a, you know, an excellent work. And, uh, uh, and that's true with Calder. Uh, it's true with Picasso and uh, so, or Warhol. So uh, I think it's particularly difficult with Calder because there's, um, you know, he mostly worked in, in sculpture of, you know, if it's either hanging sculpture or standing mobile or an outdoor sculpture, and, uh, uh, and he mixes up the colors and whatnot. But uh, there's just a, there's a special quality to these snow flurries. They, they have this optical effect that I think you, you just don't see in, the, uh, uh, in the, the colored works. And I think most importantly is that just, just supply and demand. There just aren't that many of them. Uh, whereas the colored works, uh, colored hanging mobiles, he will have done you know, throughout 60 years. Though these snow flurries are rare and unique, Manley also points out that they're quite domestic, as they say in the auction business. That means the buyer can live with it, which is the true rare advantage one gets from owning art. It's um, you know, 48 by 102 inches. To me, it's that sweet spot that, uh, where it's, it's certainly a major statement, but it's not too big that most, most people can find a place for it. And uh, uh, because it's a hanging mobile, you don't even need a wall for it. So, uh, and at 48 inches high, you know, you can hang it in most rooms. Phillips has a 1959 white infinity net painting by Yayo Kusama that is on offer with a $5 million estimate. I pointed out to Manley that although there have been three other similar paintings from 1959 or 60 that have sold in recent years for prices as high as $7.9 million, that I was struck by the fact that his work was estimated at the level of a breakthrough sale. In 2008, a white infinity net painting from 1959 made the then astonishing price of nearly $5.8 million. And I re I'll remember that sale because it was November 2008. You know, the market, needless to say, took a, a beating that season. But they were still, there was a world record price for Kusama. We had a world record price in a, for a Cornell box. Um, but... Yes, uh, that was and that was really the beginning of the mature Kusama market, and we we followed it up when I was at Christie's with a few others. But yeah, so the your 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 point is a good one because it it does point out just how attractive this estimate is. Because even though the market has grown exponentially since then, we have an extremely attractive estimate of five to seven million. Uh, and comes from a, a great private collector that. Uh, we've worked with for many years, so uh, they were willing to give it to us with an attractive estimate, knowing that there's going to be a huge amount of competition. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the other nice uh, uh, elements to it is that uh, it was formerly in the collection of Gunther Uecker, 
during the, the late 50s, early 60s, and some of the very early uh, zero group shows, you know, Uger being a part of that, that group. Kusama showed with the zero group artist in the Stalick in a major show in 1960 and some other exhibition. So Uker knew her work and, and respected it. And uh, so he owned this for, for many years. I love that connection. The $5.8 million Infinity Net painting I mentioned earlier had also been owned by Donald Judd. There was a clear period when Kusama was very much an artist's artist. That has changed. Museum shows of her work seem to be constantly taking place in every hemisphere. Yeah, I, I forget where I read this the other day, but I, I, that Kusama is the most famous artist on the planet. You know, she's she's known and loved by more people than than anyone else, and uh, and there is just an insatiable demand for her work, and it is very much global. Uh, so I think you know the you see a significant number of works coming on the market every season. They almost always sell, and they often do extremely well. Uh, and these works from the, the late 50s are extremely rare. I mean, this is when she was you know, doing these, you know, living by herself, doing them on her own. Uh, they are small in number. They're mostly all accounted for. Um, and so I think it's not surprising, though, that since there are so few to develop the market, you're seeing other series that are being embraced and uh you know the pumpkins are just so accessible and and you know intricate and obsessive in that way that people love her work so it's not surprising that most of her work is priced in a you know most of the infinity nets are priced within a certain band because there's a fair number of them and there's not that much difference in the, in the later infinity nets so that's why of course it's such a premium for the um you know, the, the early nets. And I think the pumpkins as well, you know, they're, they're a smaller subset of her work. And um, it, it's just the way the market always is. It, it, the, you never know, is it the chicken or the egg? But, you know, the, the people start to pay more and then there's this feeling that they're more important. So then they go even higher. And uh, it's interesting with artists like de Kooning. You know, you have a... No one would argue that his his breakthrough works in the, the late 40s, early 50s aren't the most important, most valuable, but you can't get your hands on them. You look at auction results and you would think, well, his most, quote, important things are from 1977. And uh, it's just, that's what the market could develop. And of course, they're extraordinary. So uh, uh, I think you're seeing that with, with the late pumpkins, but uh, I see these late 50s Kusama are a little bit like the Kooning's Women series from 1952, or Pollock Drips. I mean, uh, over time, they are only going to get more and more valuable. Right. So I think also when, when one day, one hopes there'll be a catalog raisonné and people will be able to see just how rare these things are. First-generation abstract expressionist Helen Frankenthaler was also godmother to the Colorfield painters, having pioneered the technique of staining on prime canvases with pigment. Phillips has a work bought directly from the artist and rarely seen since. Blue Dance has strong primary colors, was painted in 1963, and is roughly 5 feet by 4 feet. It's estimated at $1.8 million. You know, one of the things I'm really excited about our sale is that we've got an incredible group of abstract painting from the late 50s and early 60s. And uh, 
the, uh, you know, Philips is known, and rightfully so, for championing younger artists and creating markets, but, but we are equally proud of our, our you know, post-war uh, paintings, you know, abstract expressionism and pop art. Uh, so we have this <clears throat> right in the sweet spot of, of when Helen Frankenthal is really hitting her stride, really embracing the, the stain technique. Uh, and uh, it's a painting called Blue Dance, and indeed the, the painting, the, the forms sort of dance across the surface, and uh, beautiful color, outstanding condition. And uh, <clears throat> another great story about the way it was acquired, um, it's only had one owner, so uh, a collector that I, I knew for many years, Rhoda Mayerson uh, from Ohio, was visiting New York, <clears throat> visiting the galleries and artists like she loved to do, and uh, there was an advisor who introduced her to Helen Frankenthaler. So she visited Helen Frankenthaler, Winter Studio, 1987, sees a number of things, and then Helen sells her directly a painting out of the studio. Still not quite sure if that was on the side, you know, without the gallery knowing or not, you know. Um, but we, we even have the original piece of, of Helen Frankenthaler stationery that, you know, has the, the written invoice. So, uh, so again, it's, and it's never been, it's never been shown, it's never been seen. Uh, just went from Helen to Rhoda, who tragically, uh, sadly died uh, uh, last year. So um, we're, we're really happy to have that. In a season of ambitious expectations, Philip seems to be taking a different tack. A red and yellow Rothko work on paper mounted on Masonite from 1959, is being offered with a $6 million estimate. Two comparable works would suggest that number is very attractive. An orange and white work on paper mounted on canvas of similar size but made in 1969 was sold in 2018 for $18 million. Another red and yellow work from the same year, but a little larger, also paper mounted on canvas, was sold in 2017 for $11 million. To me, when this business works is when you have collectors who trust you to estimate things the way you want them estimated, because that usually ends, uh, leads to the best results. So, so that's similar to the, um, you know, the Calder situation, as well as the, um, the Kusama, uh, as well as the Mark Rothko. Uh, you know, we have a, just a glorious Mark Rothko from 1959. Um, it's red and orange and yellow. <clears throat> you know, uh, there's a great quote from uh, Rothko when, you know, people are s saying something vaguely disparaging about his bright paintings. And he said, well, wait, red, yellow, and orange? You know, that's the color of an inferno, you know. <clears throat> so, uh, and that's what this painting is. I mean, it, uh, it, it's just on fire. And uh, it was acquired in the 90s. It hasn't been an auction since then. Same private collector. It has an incredibly attractive estimate of six to eight million, despite the fact that it's almost a meter tall. And, um, you know, so it's great having all these vintage works that were done around the same time, these late 50s, early 60s, that, um, you know, really speak to each other. Uh, you know, there's also, um, we've got a Yves Klein uh, blue panel from 1957 and a Yves Klein sponge. So, you know, you have this French artist working in abstraction and, of course, Kusama, Japanese, uh, American artist, and they're all speaking the same language of color and abstraction and, and purity. So uh, it's just a dream when you're, 
when you have the, the ingredients to be able to put these connections together. We also have uh, uh, Hans Hoffman from 1963. Uh, <clears throat> good scale for Hoffman, 60 by 48 inches. When it sold at auction like 15 years ago or so, it set a world record at the time. We, we put the estimate, it's extremely attractive. It's around the level that it sold for, again, many years ago. So I don't know if it'll set a new world record, but, but we think it'll do extremely well compared to the estimate. And also rounding out this abstract painting group, uh, we've got an exquisite Carmen Herrera from 1965. It's one of these, again, as her work is, it, very pure. It's mostly white with some blue strips uh, on the painted surface on, on the, the right and left edge. Uh, and though the, this playing with the edge extends to the actual frame. <clears throat> so she, she uses a, a wood stripping around the, the painted surface. And then she paints part of that wood stripping blue and part of it in white. So the, the frame and the sets up this rhythm that continues into the painting and uh, just, again, a, a great example. It sold for one of the highest prices ever paid for Carmen Herrera when, it's, uh, when Philip sold it. It was about seven years ago. Okay, we've talked about the big Basquiat, the masters and mistresses of high modernism too, but this is still Philip's. Rebecca Bowling took a few minutes to talk about the breakout artists Phillips has this season. You know, at Phillips, we're known for identifying, spotting uh, emerging talent. And um, I think the first work really exemplifies that, that I'm going to talk about. And that's uh, Justin Cagliot's work, Doll Three Arrows from 2020, which represents um, an auction debut from the artist uh, who was born in Tokyo. He lives and works between uh, New York and Oakland. Um, this work was featured in his solo show at Takeishi Gallery in Tokyo in 2021. And over the past year, he's experienced just a meteoric rise in the international art world. Uh, he received widespread attention and acclaim at, at Freeze in London in 2021 um, on Modern Arts Booth. Um, and he just had a solo exhibition that just came down earlier this month at the warehouse, um, Howard Rachofsky space in Dallas and an upcoming show this fall at Green F Tally in New York. So lots of exciting things on the horizon. When I think about the appeal of his work, um, which is obviously visually striking, but it comes at a moment when the art world was so focused on so many artists making purely figurative works, right? And I think that um, these unique compositions that meld the representational with the abstract and, and organic imagery feel especially fresh and exciting. It's distinctly contemporary work, but it's obviously informed by the past. And there's there's so many visual references, you know, from, you know, the symbolist paintings of Radon, and then you can see like the influence of Viard's wallpaper, Japanese woodblock prints, and even, you know, pop culture like Japanese uh, manga as well, right? So it's this mix of, of aesthetic traditions that he uses to create his own, like, reality that kind of oscillates between, you know, imagined or otherworldly and, and observed. I asked Rebecca where buyers were learning about Kagiat. There seems to be a great deal of demand more than one might expect from viewers of the work at galleries and art fairs. And of course, Instagram, I mean, um, which became, I think, especially important throughout the pandemic as a way for people to see when they couldn't travel. And I mean, let's be serious. These works look really great in images, too, uh, which I think probably uh, is sort of leading to all of the attention and, and um, demand as well. 
Another artist with a strong backlog of demand is Colombian painter Maria Barrio. Phillips has one that's quite large. Yes, we do. We're really excited about it. It's actually um, the largest scale work that's come to auction. Um, and it's uh, her work debuted at auction in, uh, in last fall, November 21. And um, this will be the fourth and largest example to come up at auction. And again, we're talking about artists um, borrowing from the past. I mean, often her work uh, gets cited as, as having references uh, like Gustav Klimt. And, um, you know, she's known for this, the way she uses collage. Uh, she uses Japanese print paper where she cuts and tears to create these highly detailed collages and then paints details in watercolor on top of those. Um, and she was Colombian born. So she references a lot of Colombian folklore and South American literature. This piece in particular is a, it has a really personal narrative. Um, and so you see the influence of both this mythology and biography. Um, it was based on a dream she had um, as an expectant mother. And this sort of like floral abundance that subsumes the women, explores themes of fertility, um, which is something that Klimt also did with his flower imbued figures that, that symbolize the, the evolution of womanhood. Um, there are also uh, several tigers embedded in here. I, I, I luckily got to see this work when it, when it in person uh, when we had it here for highlights uh, in L.A., and we were like counting all of the different tigers. I think there are five. Um, and so uh, that reference relates to the Kogi tribe in Colombia, uh, which are known as the people of the tiger. And this is a recurring motif for her and also features um, in her, her 2019 mosaic project that she did for the Fort Hamilton Parkway subway stop in Brooklyn. Her work is, is just so immediately recognizable. And I think everyone... Um, you know, seasoned art veteran or not can appreciate sort of the time and thoughtfulness and all the work that goes into these like amazingly detailed compositions. Finally, Phillips has sold all of the high value works by Amy Sherald that have been auctioned publicly. In December of 2020, June and November of 2021, Phillips sold three different works for prices between $3.5 and $4.3 million. This season, there's another Sherald in their sale. Very, very, very lucky and excited to have this beautiful example uh, from the artist's mature body of work. It's titled, She Was Learning to Love Moments to Love Moments for Themselves, and it's from 2017. Uh, as you mentioned, she's an artist um, we hold the auction record for, which we set with Bathers um, from 2015, which sold for over $4.2 million. Uh, and we also had a work last season, uh, Welfare Queen, an earlier work from 2012 that sold for $3.9 million. Um, so super, super excited to have this work. And I think one of the things that's so interesting about it is its relationship to Cheryl's portrait of Michelle Obama. So this work was already underway when she was selected uh, to do Michelle's portrait. And there's an article in The Times which features images of her studio in Baltimore where you can see this work which I think is really, really cool to, to look at a timeline like that. Um, and of course, it like typifies this, this style, the stylized realism that's become her hallmark. Um, the gray skin palette punctuated with these colorful items of clothing set against this monochromatic flat plane, um, you know, which really uh, literally and metaphorically abstracts the sense of place and, and time for the figures. Um, I also think... Um, the figure's top is, is something really interesting to deconstruct. Um, so just like the dress she chose, um, it was a Millie dress that she chose for the former first lady. 
uh, this, the, the figure's outfit sort of calls to mind the quilts uh, created by the women of Guise Bend, uh, which, you know, a small community of women working in Alabama, mostly descendants of enslaved African-Americans. And she's referencing, you know, those famous quilters um, in the stitched bar design like Loretta Petway and Annie Mae Young, whose works now um, reside in some of the most uh, prominent museum collections like the Met um, in the National Gallery. Uh, so she's sort of highlighting these bold improvisational techniques employed by the women of Yee's Bend and referencing their independence and resourcefulness. Philip's evening sale takes place May 18th at 7 p.m. in New York. We hope you'll be watching. Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence Podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin, who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it.